through this season on the Canadian Psychological Association's podcast, we've been bringing you podcasts recorded by students in Jim Cresswell's History of Psychology class at the University of Calgary. There are still a few more excellent podcasts to go, and today we're going to hear a couple of them. My name is Eric. I'm a communications person at the CPA. Welcome to Mindful. This podcast isn't so much for psychologists, so much as for those who are interested in the science of psychology and the history of some of the most famous ideas in the profession. Today, we're going to learn about cognitive dissonance theory with Haley, Leah, Andrew, and Megan a little later on. How does it apply to the way we consume media, think about politics, and other issues? But first, let's get into maybe the most famous psychological concept, dating back to the 1960s. It began, uh, began gaining prominence with the murder of Kitty Genovese. In 1964, 28-year-old Kitty Genovese was murdered in front of her apartment building in the Queens borough of New York City. The story was that, well, all right, I'm not going to get into all of that now. Let's let Roshni, Jasmine, Pilo, and Elizabeth get more in-depth as they explain the bystander effect. In this podcast, we'll be talking about the infamous bystander effect and questioning what you were most likely taught in your undergrad. Because of the nature of this podcast, we must include a trigger warning. This podcast contains depictions of violent content that some people may find disturbing. Imagine, it's 3.30 in the morning. You're in bed, and you wake up to a woman's screams. You look outside the window. It's dark, but you make out a man cornering a woman. Do you do something, or do you tune out the noise and go back to bed? Most people learn about the bystander effect through the introduction of the story of Kitty Genovese. In 1964, Catherine, or Kitty Genovese, was murdered outside her apartment complex while 38 witnesses observed the murder and failed to act. To give a more thorough context to the bystander effect, I will briefly outline what happened the night of her murder. While Kitty was walking back to her apartment from her car late at night, a man approached her and stabbed her. Kitty screamed, and from an upper window of an apartment, a man called down, Let that girl alone. The assailant left, but returned after some minutes to stab Kitty for a second time. Windows were opened again, and lights went on in many apartments, leading to the assailant driving away around 3.35 a.m. However, the man returned to stab her a third time, fatally, and it was at 3.50 a.m. that the police received their first call from a man who was a neighbor of Miss Genevieve's. In two minutes, they were at the scene. Nobody else came forward. Why did none of the 38 witnesses do anything? To answer this question, Latani and Darley proposed the bystander effect. The bystander effect can be defined as an inhibited influence on an individual's willingness to help someone in need caused by the presence of others. Preceding the case of Kitty, documents supporting and using the term bystander effect are, to our knowledge, non-existent. Until that point, helping research had focused on how excitation of groups was worrisome, looking into things like disorder, fear, panic, all contributing to the danger of crowds. With Kitty's case, inhibition was brought into the picture. Now, crowds were dangerous because they were inactive, passive, or apathetic in emergency situations. A whole new alleyway of research opened up on why exactly the bystander effect comes to be. One of the earliest causal factors associated with the phenomena of the bystander effect is called the fusion of responsibility. 
The fugitive responsibility can be defined as the presence of other bystanders reducing an individual's feelings of personal responsibility due to an increase of shared responsibility. Based on previous studies, it seems that more individuals from a two-person group respond in situations similar to the one of Kitty's than from a three-person group, and more individuals from a three-person group respond than from a six-person group. Additionally, diffusion of responsibility seems to also lower the speed of reporting like demonstrated in the case of Kitty. Another mechanism thought to underlie the bystander effect is audience inhibition. Audience inhibition can be defined as the presence of others inhibiting helping behaviors when individuals are fearful that their behavior can be seen by others and evaluated negatively. A bystander who decides to intervene runs the risk of embarrassment if, say, the situation is misinterpreted and is not actually an emergency. The more people present, the greater this risk. So it seemed to be less likely for a person to respond to the men's situation when in the presence of one or more individuals compared to when alone. Of the contributing factors explored during these decades, group cohesiveness was considered a theoretically critical variable for understanding the bystander effect. In nearly all of the research conducted to study the bystander effect, the bystanders were strangers at the time of the emergency. So an important characteristic of such groups was that they were in low cohesiveness. So just to have a recap, cohesiveness is typically defined as the degree of attraction group members have for one another. So thereby, in low cohesive groups, it was found that larger group size actually inhibited helping, while in high cohesive groups, larger group size facilitated helping, which is a direct reversal of the bystander intervention effect. An additional area explored to gain a better understanding of the effect includes the topic of gender. So with respect to these gender and personality influences, studies around this time found that in a group setting, um, highly masculine subjects were less likely to take action to help the victim than were the other subjects. So it seems that the fear of potential embarrassment and loss of poise made them reluctant to intervene in emergencies. As you can see, early research on the bystander effect continued to demonstrate that bystanders fail to help a victim in an emergency. Many stones were unturned while trying to understand bystander apathy and, and why people don't act. So at the core of this very research was, was one single event, one idea, one woman whose calls for help fell on deaf ears. By the 1990s, the bystander effect was already one of the most explored phenomena in social psychology. Countless experiments have been conducted and have added to the overwhelming evidence that the bystander effect is impeding necessary help during emergency situations. However, despite this information, there hasn't been any improvement in bystander intervention. Mark Levine, who was a social psychologist, suggested that this lack of development was due to the limited scope that research on group helping behavior had been operating under for the last few decades. Levine recognized this need to reevaluate the bystander effect upon looking into the murder of James Bulger, a case eerily similar to that of Kitty Genovese. Bulger, a two-and-a-half-year-old boy, was abducted from his mother and murdered by two ten-year-old boys in the streets of Liverpool, England. Numerous eyewitness accounts described seeing the child in serious emotional and physical pain. Despite this recognition, witnesses to the abuse were reluctant to help, not because of the presence of others, but because they perceived the boys to be brothers and were simply playing. Levine realized that it was possible 
that the reason for non-intervention was not simply due to audience inhibition, diffusion of responsibility, or group size as originally thought. The original conception of the bystander effect, which emphasized the negative impact of the presence of others, did not have enough explanatory power. It was time to start considering new concepts that explored the social processes in play. The social identity model is one of the most current models used to explain the bystander effect. Levine and colleagues have worked for decades now to better understand how social identity and relationships fit into this phenomena. This identity and the social norms attached to it can help or inhibit. During situations in need of intervention, bystanders are more likely to help victims who they share a common identity with. They are also more likely to provide support to a victim if they perceive them to be the same social group that they belong to. The model looks at relationships between bystanders, as well as the victim and the perpetrator, while also accounting for socio-cultural influences on behavior. Now that we're up to date on the research, let's go back to the original case. There have been several groups that have identified inconsistencies in the original published story of the Genovese case. We'll be covering some points made in a 2007 article by Manning, Levine, and Collins titled The Kitty Genovese Murder and the Social Psychology of Helping, Their Parable of the 38 Witnesses. It's important right off the bat for us to stress that we are not implying that the research inspired by the case was flawed. Rather, the persistent misrepresentation of the details of the case is what has some negative consequences. Here are just some of the inconsistencies noted by Manning and colleagues. For starters, there's claims of a journalist who had been sent to cover the murder story, coming back to his editor and saying not to run the story he wrote because the number of witnesses claimed was not right. Court transcripts and other legal documents from the case do not substantiate the popularized story of the 38 witnesses either. Actually, to date, no documented list of the 38 witnesses exists. The assistant district attorney on the case said, and I quote, we only found about a half dozen that saw what was going on that we could use. The three witnesses at the actual trial all reported glimpses of the events and said that the interactions didn't look particularly damning. That is, with what they saw, they didn't really know they were watching a murder take place. We also know from records that neighbors and people living in the apartments did in fact make calls to the police. If you put all these inconsistencies together, a very different picture is painted. We know that 38 people didn't simply stand in awe for 30 minutes and watch a woman get murdered. In the iconic Genovese case, the one that sparked the bystander research in the first place, the bystander effect itself does not hold. Although the originally painted story has since been dispelled, and more accurate accounts are readily available today, the original parable still pops up in social psychology textbooks. In fact, Manning and colleagues surveyed the 10 most popular undergraduate textbooks and found that Kitty's story was in all of them, and all of them stated that nobody intervened. Nowhere is it mentioned that there are some holes in the original story that sparked decades of research. What's worrisome about it is that psychology textbooks serve as an introduction for the discipline for many undergraduate students. For some, this is a crash course in a field taken as an options class. For others, a complete overview of what their prospective field has accomplished thus far. In 2001, Mary Smith spoke to the problems that may arise from this continual presentation of a less than factual story in her piece for the Journal of Theory and Psychology. Different from the other sciences, she said, psychology textbooks present experiments and other evidence as the content that the beginner must learn. Psychology presents paradigms of doing, 
not knowing. Therefore, there is an established truth claim in the textbook itself. With the presentation of this claim, there are defined parameters that the study of helping behaviors must fall under. So prospective researchers in social psychology then are basically working within the idea that the presence of a group has consequences. But we know that many other factors have been introduced and proposed, yet they are not incorporated into the mainstream textbook narrative, leaving students to have to play catch up on published literature that goes beyond group presence. Speaking from experience, students aren't fond of extracurricular literature searches, and a change is needed is how we talk about helping behavior research. Yes, the Genovese case was instrumental in catapulting a whole new way of looking at the dangers of groups, but many factors have been outlined that go beyond the basic underpinnings of the bystander effect, and they need to be incorporated into textbooks to demonstrate that our discipline is growing in our understanding, not just stuck in one dimension of a phenomena. Students' innovation should not be stunted by the very book that hopes to educate and inspire. Now comes the time to discuss whether advances in experimental work and theory building have had an impact on violence reduction. As mentioned previously with the Bulger case, Mark Levine was one of the first to assert that conceptions up until the early 2000s fell flat. Unfortunately, now with six decades of research on the bystander effect, that trend has not changed. A recently published article by Levine, Philpott, and Kovalenko shows that the results of existing intervention programs are mixed at best. It's been consistently shown that they do improve attitudes, specifically about rape myths, and there is self-reported empowerment as well. However, as of 2019, there is little actual evidence showing the effectiveness of any training program in real dangerous situations. Levine and colleagues continue to argue that the weakness of these programs is their uncritical adoption of the traditional conception of the bystander effect as the starting point to their initiatives. The mere presence of others is not the only factor at play in emergency situations, meaning a program developed around this one concept will not successfully address the complexities of the topic. To quote the authors, while there is empirical support for the idea of a bystander effect in general, there is no evidence that it applies in the kinds of aggressive or violent emergencies that prompted research into the phenomenon in the first place. What's been covered leaves us here knowing that the efficacy of bystander intervention programs is still up for debate, as is whether the bystander effect was even at play in Kitty's case. What is not up for debate, however, is whether we see the bystander effect in the real world. Again, we must provide a trigger warning for this upcoming section. Some of the following cases discussed include details that may be triggering for some with respect to sexual assault and death. Ilan Halimi was kidnapped in Paris on January 21, 2006 by Moroccan barbarians. He was then relentlessly tortured for 24 days. They beat him, burned his body, covered his entire head except for his mouth with duct tape, and then demanded ransom from his family. Throughout the course of these three weeks, neighbors in the apartment building heard screams. Some even went to watch, but no one called the police. A father of one of the torturers knew of his son's activities, but said nothing. Up to 27 people were charged for joining in, and 19 were officially convicted. Astonishingly, the authorities were never called. Instead, a passerby found Halimi naked, bound to a tree, on February 13th. He died in the ambulance, on the way to the hospital. In 2007, Raggy Abraham was charged with first and third degree criminal sexual conduct. 
Though he denies remembering the events of the night in question, CCTV footage from an apartment shows clear sexual assault taking place. It also shows up to 10 people opening their doors, looking at what was happening and closing them. We know that 911 was called more than an hour after the woman had surged screaming for help. Not a single witness tried to intervene. In the media, the bystander effect quickly became an explanation for what happened that night. Two-year-old Wang Yue wandered from her home in Foshan, China on October 13, 2011. She found herself in the middle of a market road, alone, and was hit by a car, then run over by another. Surveillance footage revealed that she laid on the ground unattended for seven minutes. In that time, 18 passerbys walked by the girl's bleeding body, avoiding it as if it a speed bump or stopping to stare. A woman eventually helped the girl, but she died of her injuries days later. Panama City Beach, 2015. Hundreds celebrating spring break. Among the crowds, a group of men gang rape an unconscious girl on the beach in broad daylight. Several videos were taken of the incident, which went viral. The Bay County Sheriff, speaking of the video, says there's hundreds, hundreds of people standing there, watching, looking, seeing, hearing what's going on. Yet no one intervenes or calls the police. These stories tell us that even in today's world, bystander apathy remains a scary reality. While we love seeing the news cover Good Samaritan stories, stories of inactive bystanders are just as rampant. And for this troubling observation, we need a solution. Knowing that people in groups are less likely to help, how can we empower potential bystanders? Well, first we suggest that textbooks need to change in order to facilitate innovation in helping behavior research. Advancing theory is foundational to developing successful applications of knowledge. We also suggest that intervention programs incorporate diverse and new literature findings. Program developers need to incorporate a brand new ideology towards counteracting the bystander effect that isn't just based on the infamous findings from past research. It's important that as research in the field advances, ecologically valid uses for psychological investigations too must be kept up to date to reflect our most current knowledge. Providing viable intervention programs is the best chance we have at success. Thank you, Pilo, Jasmine, Elizabeth, and Roshni for that look at the bystander effect. Now we're going to move on to Leah, Andrew, Haley, and Megan for their take on cognitive dissonance theory. Do you find that when reading the news, you're more apt to look for things that you already agree with? If so, you're not alone. Current events have made looking at the news a dismal experience, to say the least. But is this the reason we look at news we already agree with instead of looking at media that may challenge our perspectives? Today, we'll explore the evolution of cognitive dissonance and selective attention theories and the implications they have for our consumption of political media. What are the origins of these theories? What has the contemporary research found on the topic? And what factors may change the roles cognitive dissonance and selective attention play in our daily lives? Welcome to Thinking About History, a Canadian Psychological Association podcast in which we aim to unearth the vast history surrounding psychological research and how we can use this information today. I'm Haley. I'm Leah. And I'm Andrew. You've probably heard the terms cognitive dissonance and selective attention before, but let's review their definitions. 
Cognitive dissonance is the discrepancy between the individual's expectations and reality, which results in mental dissonance. This theory originated with Fessinger in 1957, and his original experiment involved participants completing repetitive and monotonous tasks. Now, the experiment had three conditions, a control group and two experimental conditions that received one or $20. The control group had no incentive to lie, and they were honest in saying that the task was boring, whereas the $20 group explained that they did the task for the money. Finally, the $1 group were more likely to say that the tasks were enjoyable because they reconciled contradicting behavior and inner thoughts. Okay, okay. I'm going to cut in here with a little fun fact about Festinger. Because did you know that at one point he actually studied a small apocalyptic cult? And this cult actually believed that the world would end on December 21st, 1954. And obviously the so-called doomsday came and went, but we're still here. So the sad thing here, though, is that despite being proven wrong, it actually increased the cult's members' faith in their cult because this would actually reduce the cognitive distance they would feel it. Well, thank you for that amazing fun fact about Festinger, Andrew. Um, so in terms of selective attention, we define it as the process of directing our awareness to relevant information while simultaneously ignoring irrelevant information. This theory actually precedes cognitive dissonance and has been studied since like the 1940s. Specifically, Lazarsfeld and colleagues have studied selective attention in congruence with political media since like 1944. In their original study, they interviewed a sample population during the seven months leading up to the 1940 presidential election, and they found that media, so like newspaper and radio and campaign advertising, didn't influence individual voting habits a whole bunch. It was actually word of mouth that had a greater influence on voting habits. But this does cater to the long-standing fear that our social media and social groups may shape our opinions both in history and today. So I guess the question becomes, how do these two theories impact one another, especially in terms of political media? Yeah, that's a good question. So the theories of cognitive dissonance and selective attention have proven to be crucial to understanding how people interact with political content. As we just discussed, selective attention and cognitive dissonance have had important political implications for media consumption since the 1940s. That is, 80 years of research pointing to the importance of these theories in conjunction with political media. In fact, that's probably older than most of you listening today. Okay, so why exactly are we studying it for so long then? Well, we have to recognize that the types of political information that people have access to has changed rapidly since the 40s. Today, for example, political information is accessed through television and newspapers, but also through newer means such as blogs and social media forums such as Twitter and Facebook. Even today, most studies still haven't suggested how society can avoid the impact that selective attention has on the consumption of political information. Really? Yikes. Well, what have contemporary studies discovered? Well, that's a good question because recently, a relatively recent study, from Sang and their colleagues in 2019, they actually examined the effects of cognitive dissonance as the force behind selective attention. And this is with respect to how people self-select political information to consume. Okay, and what did they find? So you see, Sang and his team had the, the participants view a fake news story about global climate change policy 
And this was specifically about global climate change because of its ability to differentiate between the political right and the political left. Speaking of the political right, someone has something to say. You are fake news. Anyways, continuing on from that lovely contribution, Sang and colleagues found that cognitive dissonance pushes people to seek out information which confirm their beliefs. And so people tend to seek out new sources, new sources which align with their beliefs and maximize them to feel good, while simultaneously avoiding news that conflict with their ideologies and make them feel uncomfortable. So it all ties back to trying to reduce cognitive dissonance. Yeah, and I know a meta-analysis from 2013 had similar findings. So they investigated political polarization as a result of cognitive dissonance and selective attention, and they found that people will usually turn to attitude-consistent information and eventually develop increasingly polarized ideologies. So this develops like a cycle of seeking reinforcing information and avoiding contrasting and dissonance-creating information. As a result, they argued that we need to look at political polarization through the lens of these theories to provide insight as to how they affect and how we interact with political messages communicated through media. A study from two years later complements these arguments well. The team surveyed American readers of political blogs to examine their selective attention. The more that mainstream media presented cognitively dissonant information, and the more participants used blogs and alternative news sources to support their perspectives. Having preferred media sources can allow for individuals to escape their cognitive dissonance through a selective attention of news which aligns with their beliefs. So, if you're a pro-Biden supporter, you might rarely consume pro-Trump media such as Fox News, but you might read blogs that support the Democrats. I mean, yeah. Intuitively, that does make sense. Because, like, let's imagine you're sitting on a couch at the airport looking at a couple TVs, and one has Fox News and the other has, like, CNN or something. I'm sure that people generally prefer one over the other, because I sure know which one I'm going to be watching. Ah, uh, neither. Associated Press is my choice. Thank you very much. <laughs> but is ignoring the other media source problematic? Yeah, it, it totally can be because research has shown that exposure to diverse perspectives is actually really important in maintaining a strong democracy. Because when people are exposed to differing beliefs, it is that potential for cognitive dissonance that then leads individuals to having more tolerant political stances. Because just imagine if people were more tolerant and open-minded, imagine how pleasant our debates and arguments at family dinners can become. However, as nice as all of this sounds, it seems to be difficult to achieve in the current political climate. As access to political information continues to improve, the increased chance of engagement with confirming information, particularly partisan information, also rises, thus increasing political polarization. Speaking of which, do these theories lend themselves to political polarization? Yeah, they do actually. Uh, for example, there was this study conducted in 2013 where they surveyed politically active Americans during the 2008 election. I, for a refresher, if you don't remember the 2008 American election, it was Barack Obama versus John McCain. And at the time, it actually had the highest voter turnout since like the 60s. Okay, just to interrupt though, the recent 2020 election has actually just topped those numbers. But anyway, sorry, continue. Yeah. <laughs> Well, they found that the online users were more likely to refer to political blogs and websites that support their views. 
as well, elevated levels of selective attention were found among those who relied completely on online sources such as political blogs and websites for their information. Actually, this exclusive reliance on online media sources for news seemed to predict high levels of selective, selective attention with greater accuracy than the perceived credibility of the media. And so, speaking of news credibility and politics, 2020 has been quite the year for fake news, hasn't it? We have this lovely world leader who is just this perfect bastion of credible news, and I hardly need to get into detail, but I'm sure you all know. So if you're wondering why the two words Trump and credibility are in the same sentence, a study in 2009 may explain why Trump's tweets were perceived as credible to many. The study explained how internet technology has helped to narrow political horizons by investigating the extent to which partisans on the political right treat Fox News as a preferred provider. More specifically, they observed whether attention to the identical news story increased or decreased when the story was attributed to a particular news outlet. Unsurprisingly, results from the study showed that Fox News is the dominant media source for the political right, and that many years of experience with a favored news provider reinforces information-seeking behaviors. Yeah, because in fact, in 2015, I think it was, a new study actually pushed this idea even further by explaining why political partisans may have a preferred news provider. And so they proposed that there's an element of choice when discussing cognitive dissonance in relation to accessing news, which then alludes to this notion of selective attention. And what they ultimately found was that the news sources were generally viewed as more credible when they were either neutral or if they aligned with the participants' beliefs. Whereas news that challenged participants' attitudes then caused increased levels of cognitive dissonance, ultimately resulting in that news credibility and cognitive dissonance comes together to explain selective attention. Yeah, and uh, to minimize cognitive dissonance, voters seem to choose news sources that support their political views. But what happens to people who want politically less involved news? As it turns out, it's actually increasingly difficult to encounter nonpartisan messages um, from a study from like 2001, I think. As such, voters' increased exposure to one-sided news coverage reinforces existing beliefs and attitudes, which results in people seeking out information aligned with their perspectives, regardless of its actual credibility. I guess that holds, you know, a couple implications for the formation of a lesson form that I suppose polarized electorate, huh? Yeah, it's definitely relevant in recent North American political events. As well, it has implications for how newer methods of communication are exacerbating these issues of voters looking at political information selectively based on their attitudes. So that's both good and bad, I guess. Voters, hopefully, are opinionated people, and their opinions influence their attitude, which in turn results in certain voting behaviors. The strength of an attitude can influence the effectiveness of selective attention and how it is used. Therefore, attitudes can moderate politically charged selective attention. Exactly. And that's why opinions and attitudes are so important to examine. And there's been a lot of research, actually, on them as moderators involving selective attention and politics. For instance, the work done in 2007, they found that the strength of an attitude does impact how much someone enjoys viewing information that is consistent with their existing beliefs. And this ultimately shows that attitude strength is an important moderator for selective attention. 
Well, I could have just told you this by asking my dad how much he likes to watch CNN. Okay. Hey, now. But you know, that 2007 paper, that wasn't the only one with this. Another study, a couple years later, um, they actually looked at participants' attitudes once again. And what they ultimately found was that individuals who read the news spend most of their time reading articles they agreed with. This is because the strength and confidence of their attitudes helps alleviate any distance they may have felt. And this confidence is so crucial because with increasing confidence levels, people were actually less likely to anticipate or even recognize dissonance behaviors. Yeah, about uh, eight years later in 2013, another study addressed selective attention and its moderators by addressing how people view satirical political information. So results indicated that satirical news generally pushed people away from opposing views. So those in the satirical news condition were more likely to look at pro-attitudinal articles and were less likely to look at counter-attitudinal articles, which suggests that comedic news may actually enhance selective attention tendencies, which kind of poses is a threat to efforts aimed at decreasing the polarization of political climates. So how are individuals and the media impacted by these theories? Well, studies on this topic have actually gone all the way back to research from the 1990s. And prior to that, though, the information we had was admittedly quite inconsistent when it came to the role of selectivity in protecting the masses from like persuasive messaging. For example, the researchers, um, they looked at German newspapers for an indicator of how political information was consumed. And what they found was that political content is read only 20% of the time, and that'll even decrease as the article progresses. Well, yeah, that's because political news articles are kind of boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's certainly true. And that, you know, readers do prefer reading what politicians they like. Because if they were neutral to the politician, people were even less likely to read the article than if they favored one side over the other, which implies that cognitive dissonance between political content and subjects' attitudes may actually result in selective attention. So jumping ahead into the early 2000s, in 2004, it was found that cognitive dissonance and low media literacy may be responsible for decreases in willingness towards receiving news from television because let's be honest, television quality has become trash. Indeed, people revert to newspapers in an attempt to attain the most accurate news story, which, suge which suggests that the public is subject to cognitive dissonance when it comes to media consumption. So when the news reports something incongruent with the public's perception of itself, will all just unconsciously alter this perception to reduce cognitive dissonance? Yeah, exactly. And some of the implications that follow are that cognitive dissonance leads the masses to engage with television that aligns with their own perceptions. And as you can imagine, selective attention in television has political ramifications for the democratic process. And so, yeah, that's a good point, because coming to present day once again, in 2008, another study investigated selective attention when reading political web pages. And specifically, they looked at the time spent reading material that aligned with the participants' beliefs. What they found was that people spent longer looking at stuff that aligned with their beliefs and less time on contradictory material, which demonstrates that selective attention is used to avoid cognitive dissonance. 
Now, this is concerning as it means that people won't be engaging with other perspectives critically, which could result in closed-mindedness. Oh, it's like anti-maskers. It's like, it's not just about you. You have to look out for the people around you as well. Exactly. And that is why it's so arguably dangerous for a healthy democracy, because excessive selective attention can result in polarization and ultimately an us versus them mentality. Well, it definitely looks like the known relationship between cognitive dissonance and selective attention has evolved over like a really long time with some super useful applications in politics. I mean, all this research has given us a clearer understanding of political media consumption and political polarization. As well, it's given us an idea as how people engage with political media. Absolutely. So to recap the key contributions from each time period, let's start at the very beginning. In the 50s and 60s, Fessinger was the first one to lay down the framework for cognitive dissonance. And then in the 1970s to 1990s, there were challenges to Fessinger's ideas as others tried to re-examine his theories. The 1990s to the 2000s brought more contemporary contributions to the field as studies showed that the advances in technology contributed to the narrowing of political horizons because people attend to information that matches their own beliefs and they tend to block out dissonant information. Then, finally, we reach the 2010s to the present day, and in this time period, researchers introduced new variables like online media and news and their impact on political polarization. So all of these studies may just seem like facts, but this timeline can explain the evolution of cognitive dissonance and selective attention theories. These theories may also explain the media consumption and political engagement behaviors that we can currently notice across North America. Well, yeah, the way in which society consumes political media and then translates and applies it into their political involvement is critical. Oh, for sure, especially with the current political instability. For example, COVID has highlighted the need for public health info that is both reliable and consistent. After all, polarization of beliefs when it comes to public health, that can have some pretty devastating societal implications. And with that, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning into Thinking About History, a Canadian Psychological Association podcast. As always, we hope your listening experience was enjoyable and hopefully you learned something new about your history of psychology and what it means for the world we live in today. It's great to see students so interested in the history of psychology and doing such in-depth research into these familiar concepts, isn't it? Thank you to Jim Cresswell and his History of Psychology class at the University of Calgary, and thank you to today's participants. More to come in an upcoming episode. Mindful Today was written and hosted by Elizabeth, Pilo, Roshni, Jasmine, Andrew, Haley, Leah, and Megan. It was edited and produced by me, Eric Bullman. Our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor.